0: Welcome to the latest edition of Spotlight, a PI Group podcast that delves into the very latest in private markets investing. I'm Adam Lay, senior editor based in London, and today we have Chris Field, a partner with law firm Deckett, here to talk all about the law firm's latest global private equity outlook. Chris, welcome to Spotlight.
1: Adam, thank you, thank you very much for having me. So the survey reached out to, I think, the splitters 45. North America, 35, EMEA, and and the remaining 25, if I got my maths right, APAC, so covering all of the main investment geographies and pose a detailed series of questions to them. And then based on that qualitative data, we compile a combined report, which gives you a snapshot of where the industry is at. And because a number of the questions are forward-looking where the industry is likely to go.
0: A 30 second kind of spiel. Tell us what you do, what you focus on, what your expertise is, Chris.
1: Sure, sure. So I'm a partner at Deckett in the London office. I co-head our private equity practice. My particular area of practice is on the transactional side. And my mix of work, it's it's almost entirely for sponsor clients. The mix is mainly private, but I also do some public M&A as well.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So you would have been busy in the first half of last year and less busy in the second half.
1: Exactly. I was being absolutely crushed in 2021. It kind of flowed into the beginning of last year and then it went quieter. Yes, that's exactly right.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, I was particularly interested in one of the charts in your report, which is kind of asking fund sponsors kind of what trends they see as the kind of, what what are the biggest trends kind of post-COVID in private equity? Question first over to you, what were the kind of most surprising findings from this particular question?
1: The number one selected answer is that the expectation and and the question being, what trends do you see growing as an after effect of the COVID-19 pandemic? The number one answer was more club deals. And and so you kind of go, well, hang on, that's a strange consequence in and of itself, but I suspect what's going on there is that club deals are are obviously a way to offset risk individually for a sponsor, share risk with the other sponsor and particularly in an environment that we find ourselves in at the moment where it's more difficult to obtain financing specifically on the larger end of deals where you're likely to want to club together. That also gives you a benefit in terms of the likelihood of being able to raise financing if you have two sponsors who sharing the risk into the deal. Mm -hmm. So when you look at it from that context, it makes more sense as to why that was the most selected answer. That was followed up with, no surprises here, it was more distressed deals. Right. Yes. (laughs) That's almost certainly going to be the case. Uh, At least I would hypothesize, and it's good to see that um, respondents felt the same way. 2022 is very much the year of monetary tightening and rising interest rates. I think we haven't seen the full repercussions of that manifest themselves yet. And there's a lot of talk about 2023 being the year of the impact on earnings and consequent reduction on earnings. And I think it's that really that is going to drive a lot more distressed activity.
0: Are you actually seeing distressed deals you know, coming to market? Are you...
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But there hasn't been the tsunami of distressed deals that was initially the expectation. Well, I think everyone hopes it doesn't materialize, but if it were to materialize, I think the expectation is this is the year, if not this year, certainly going into next year. Right. That will be the case. Right, yep. right. Okay. And again, that's driven by the double whammy for, for leveraged companies of having to deal with much higher financing costs coupled with depressed earnings.
0: Are you seeing the kind of dedicated turnaround distressed players on the buy side there? Are there new entrants to that part of the market?
1: Yeah. So so certainly there are a number of new entrants because they've been a somewhat rare species <laughs> over the right. past number of years. Right. You know, right. it's just been such a difficult environment for people who are, you know, completely focused and for absence of any distress with huge monetary stimulus.
0: Right. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yes. There was one kind of growth firm that we covered that launched, I think, in either late 2019 or very early 2020. And they've subsequently, I think London-based, turned their strategy around to you know, distressed. Now their website, you know, whereas previously it said we are a growth investor, now it says we're a distressed investor.
1: <laughs> yep. 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 And I've certainly seen the mirror image of that. Certainly, I, I historically worked a lot with a client who was a very distinguished turnaround investor uh-huh. and slowly over a number of years, they slowly migrated their emphasis from turnaround mm. into more classic, you know, private equity investing. And, and so interestingly, now I've been sort of joking with a bit and saying it's time to revitalize the turnaround tag. You know, this <laughs>
0: is the moment. Right. Fascinating. And how about on the kind of club deals? I mean, this was something that, you know, seems to have reared its head, I guess, because, you know, go back five years, it, it kind of wasn't really in vogue, was it?
1: Yeah, that's right. And And you sort of at least... Anecdotally, I think you see club deals in two scenarios. The one is at the very height of the market, where literally to be able to pay up for the type of payment that's required to be successful in a very competitive auction, and again, these typically are for much larger assets. Mm. That's why you need to club together you will see club deals. And I think you saw that a lot just immediately prior to the great financial crisis. Mm. You saw a lot of those larger club deals and and some of those didn't work out so well. And I think now what's being talked about here in this report is a different sort of defensive club deal for the reasons that we just talked about.
0: Uh So reducing kind of equity risk.
1: Exactly. Increasing the likelihood of being able to raise the necessary debt financing, reducing equity risk, um, increasing the likelihood of having operational turnaround you know, all of those benefits, rather than simply being used as a method to accumulate sufficient capital to be able to pay
0: up the price that's needed. Are there any other kind of interesting findings from this particular question you think we should delve into?
1: So further down the list, which is listed as a growing effect from the COVID pandemic is expanding retail access to private equity vehicles. That's obviously the topic du jour, I say obviously because it's very much been in the press recently. I personally don't believe that that is a consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic. I think there are deeper drivers for it, but I'm not surprised to see it on this list. It's Mm. definitely something that's coming.
0: Yes. I was particularly interested to read in your report that I think it was quite a high amount, 63% or something like that of respondents said that the increasing retailization uh, or democratization, as is often used, will have a, a negative impact on it. I can't remember if it was negative impact on returns or it will impact returns.
1: It was negative impact. And and you're right, that was an interesting response to get to the report, mm. given that there's been so much interest in this area that, that actually you know a majority almost two-thirds, are saying actually this may be negative. As we've tried to unpack that a bit and understand the reasoning behind that. And so maybe if we just rewind slightly, if retailization unfolds as is expected, it is likely to be transformative for the industry because this will allow the industry to access vast new pools of capital that haven't been accessed previously. And that's going to bring a number of consequences with it. And I think that's probably what's driving that response. So one of the consequences is there will be a lot more capital available to be deployed. And so query, does that lead to some form of asset price inflation, certainly amongst the sponsors who are able to access retail investors and draw in that capital? And so does that create difficulties in terms of the return profile? I think another concern that's out there is the this is a very different type of investor to your classic institutional investor that the private equity industry is comfortable with and has worked with for many years. And you see early signs of that, for example, in the press recently with B-REIT, the the Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust, you know, retail investors like liquidity. They expect to be able to redeem if and when they need to. and, And that's not necessarily completely consistent with the private equity model. So there's a lot of work that's been done to try and bridge that divide. But there's going to be continued pressure in that area to ensure that you can provide the necessary liquidity to retail investors. Mm. I think another aspect is going to be fee compression. If I say this somewhat anecdotally speaking myself, as a retail investor, you know, I could invest in a Vanguard tracker and I'll be charged 0.1%.
0: Very different to private equity.
1: I'd be asked to pay 20 times that number. 20 times. So... Presumably, I'd expect really outsized returns for that additional payment. Now, how you work that all through, how that impacts, that's all yet to be seen. Those are all hurdles that need to be dealt with as retailization unfolds. And that's before we talk about the regulatory oversight and the additional regulatory exposure that firms that push into this area are taking on, given that, you know most regulators' number one priority within list of priorities is retail protection.
0: Mm, mm. So some of the immediate kind of impacts we could see is potentially management fees coming down, essentially, from that kind of standard 2%? It's, it,
1: it's hard to know, but you can see the drivers that might result in that being the case.
0: Okay. And then are there any other kind of impacts on that kind of LPGP nexus when, you know, a private equity fund goes from having you know, 10 large institutional investors who have very long kind of investment horizons to, you know, a bunch of individual investors, 401ks, et cetera, who are more focused on, on daily liquidity.
1: Exactly. And so I think a lot of that needs to be addressed through using different types of vehicles for different types of investors. So I personally don't see there being significant co-mingling. Between classic institutional investors and retail investors, oh. I think they would be sitting in different vehicles. Really, um, I mean, to the extent they want to commingle of their own choice, that's a different question. But I suspect a lot of these retail vehicles are going to be designed specifically for retail investors. Mm,
0: mm-hmm, yeah. So mm-hmm.
1: less co-mingling there. I think one other trend that's it's absolutely going to accelerate. So, so we've seen over a number of years through these reports. The continued bifurcation of the industry, the growth of the very large multi-strategy asset managers, which in many ways, including in fundraising and particularly through the pandemic, have pulled away from your smaller and particularly your new entrants. And if anything, retailization is going to accelerate that trend because to effectively market to retail investors, you need a very, very large back office infrastructure. And that's before you talk about how you tap into the retail distribution channels. And so that is going to mean that it's going to be the large multi-strategy managers that have those resources that are able to do that and therefore attract that additional capital and further exacerbate the bifurcation.
0: We have to talk about debt, I guess, and the increasing cost of borrowing, which is really a large key takeaway from the report. I think it was 42% of North American and 40% of APAC respondents cited the increasing cost of debt as the number one concern affecting them. How are you seeing that play out in the transactions that you've seen over the last, say, six months or so?
1: Yeah. And so that's had a disproportionate impact on the larger transactions. So there's certainly, when when we look at the quantitative data, the drop-off in transaction activity has been more marked at the larger end Mm -hmm. than it has in the mid-market, and that's almost entirely driven by inability to access debt financing. And that's with banks pulling back in the syndicated loan market and almost no ability to access the public markets. It's very difficult to finance those large transactions. By contrast, what you've seen in the mid-market is the banks being replaced by credit funds. And this year, the story has very much been about the growth of credit funds, both on the transactional front, where for a number of years, credit funds have continued to drive into traditional bank lending, and that's accelerated over the last year, but also in terms of fundraising, where the one area, and I I believe I want to say it's something like 82% of respondents, I need to check the report to be exact, but it's it's a very high percentage said that if they were to move into one new strategy next year, it would be credit. Mm, In 2023. In 2023, Mm. yeah. mm -hmm. And so that tells you very much that this has been the year of the growth of credit.
0: Are you seeing sort of a lot more all equity deals. I mean there was kind of reports of some, you know, KKR doing all equity deals in 2022. Are you seeing more of that? Do you expect to see more of that?
1: Yes, but I don't expect that to be the dominant approach at all. And as I said, certainly in the mid-market, there is financing availability. It means financing through credit funds. And so I don't expect all equity deals to be anything like the majority approach. It's difficult to drive the necessary returns without putting leverage into it.
0: So the LBO model still is the LBO model. Exactly. As a transaction sort of lawyer, are you seeing sponsors using kind of creative approaches to kind of deal structuring? Yes, certainly around talking less
1: about debt and just talking about the pure M&A side, certainly around bridging the valuation gap. Absolutely. Earnouts which at least historically have tended to be and certainly you'd see them quite a lot in the tech space to recognize implied value that was sitting in say the founders particularly interestingly funky product you know earnouts are definitely back on the table for a very different reason which is specifically to bridge that valuation divide between sellers who still have elevated expectations expect those are going to tail off over the course of this year and buyers who definitely don't have elevated expectations and no longer prepared to pay up. And you're seeing versions of an earnout in deferred consideration or something that allows the buyer to evaluate cost over time. So, yes, certainly seeing that. Also, seeing a lot of what I would describe as defensive use of warranty and indemnity insurance. Yeah, and and what I mean by that is in the absence of warranty and indemnity insurance, legitimately, your your buyer is going to expect some form of retention or escrow to compensate them if it turns out the business is not as they expected and they need to bring a breach of warranty claim. You know, with warranty and indemnity insurance, you can push that risk onto the insurer. And so in a down market as we are at the moment, it's particularly important to have that to avoid the risk of the retention or the escrow, which can be really impactful on the IRR on the seller, who's not able to access those funds and return them to investors immediately on closing. So in that sense, that's also a form of creative deal structuring to address a down market.
0: And another big topic, valuations. One really interesting data point that I read in the report was large regional differences between how confident, I guess, sponsors were in terms of valuations. So valuation uncertainties making buyers and sellers reluctant to transact. Very large difference between North American respondents and other parts of the world. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I suspect the driver of that is regional variations. And the two big ones, the, the the obvious ones, if we look at the APAC region, by some margin, the largest market, China, which had, at least at the time the report was being prepared, uh, its COVID lockdown and the economic impact from the COVID lockdown. So that obviously would create a very different set of expectations that, that they're going to be regionally unique. And also my colleague in the report, who's based in our Singapore office, who, who has a lot more insight to this, was saying that in the APAC region, there is less, relatively less exit activity than you would say, see, for example, in the US, you know, which is the most developed market. And so, with less opportunity for exit, that also creates more risk aversion on the part of sellers as to what they're able to achieve to ensure they can hit the requisite IRR. And so, that in itself drives a valuation gap. So, I think that combination would affect the APAC answers. And if we turn to EMEA, as compared with the North American region, you know, the Ukraine war looms large and the consequent um, energy crisis and focus on energy security. And so certainly uh, the CEE region in particular has been particularly impacted by that in terms of drop off of deal activity and concerns about investment into the region. But it's also then rolled into Western Europe more generally and so that again will drive different behaviours to the US which is obviously the dominant north american market so i think that those have been the two primary regional factors that would drive that variation in the responses
0: mm. so these are very kind of local specific region specific dynamics aren't they that are correct. affecting correct the correct
1: but but then all of them overlaid more generally by global monetary tightening and global rise in interest rates
0: One very interesting data point that I read in the report was talking about GP stakes, actually. And I was surprised, if not shocked, to see that 63% of GPs were planning to divest GP stakes. I don't know if it was in 2023 or if the timeline was kind of vague, but that seemed like a Very high response rate, I guess. Yeah,
1: and to answer the second part of your question, I suspect in answering it, they were thinking indefinitely rather than simply over the next 12 months. But even then, you're right, that is a high response rate. And I think what's driven that is, at least historically, the perception has always been a GP stake divestment is really a succession planning tool. And if you look back at a, a lot of founders of traditional LBO firms reaching a point where they would like to realize the value of the business that they've built. You know, that's a very neat mechanic to achieve that, and that's been the perception of the use of GP stake divestments. That's changed over, if not the past few years, certainly over the last year. It's also now very much seen as a tool to help fund uh, increased GP commitments. And increased GP commitments is being driven by two things. Firstly, the absolute size of funds, It's automatically increasing the absolute size of a GP commitment. And and literally, how do you fund that?
0: Because those teams aren't growing, you know, ex- with the size relative of the fund.
1: to the size of the fund, exactly. And then secondly, on a relative basis, and particularly as we go into this market where investors have a greater say with with more difficulty in fundraising, investors are demanding that GPs put more skin in the game on a relative basis. And so again, how do you fund that? And and that's where GP staked divestment can be valuable. A further version is where the fund works with the buyer of the GP stake to construct a more bespoke package, where for example, you might say something like, we're comfortable selling down some of the management company to you, but in return, given that you're now going to be part of the management and you're gonna drive the future of the fund, we would expect you to invest into our next fund and show your commitment that way. Which, of course, in a difficult fundraising environment to bring in a cornerstone investor or secure investment up front is really valuable. So in that way, a GP stake divestment is part of a bigger structure to secure ongoing fundraising. And and so I think all of those would explain the high response rate.
0: Fascinating. I mean, it, it's not like there's a lack of capital ready to invest in. This. I think it was just CalPERS that announced that it was committing a billion dollars to, well, it's kind of diverse and, uh, and emerging managers. But that's also both on the kind of fund commitment side and providing operational capital, I believe, and CPPIB, Constellation mm-hmm. Capital, um, lots of other institutional investors doing this.
1: Yeah, correct, correct. I mean, there's the commitment on the part of investors to invest into the private capital industry generally has not waned at all. I think they've had some difficulties with the denominator effect, with the drop, the significant drop in the valuation of public markets. That's created pressure in terms of their asset allocation. And I think that's been doubled because there was an active push, certainly through 2021, to increase their exposure to private capital. And so that's exacerbated it. But I think the drive to continue to invest has not waned.
0: Chris, uh, tell listeners where they can find your report.
1: Yes, so you can find the report on the homepage of Deckert. And for those of you who don't have Google, that is www.deckert.com. And it should be up there in bright lights. And again, just to repeat, the actual title of the report is the 2023 Global Private Equity Outlook Report.
0: Readers can obviously go to privateequityinternational.com as well, uh, type in Deckert and find our analysis of your report, or head directly to Deckert.com to find your report. Um, thank you so much for joining us today on PI Spotlight, Chris. It's absolute pleasure.